Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. so far and a great week as always. I hope that you've been giving yourself rest, self-care, and nourishment no matter how that looks like. Um, And today we're going to be talking to Dr. Jessica Jackson and Dr. Farzana Salim. They are both psychologists and we're going to be talking about luxury, liberation, and anti-racism. This is a really awesome conversation. Um, I went to grad school with Dr. Jessica Jackson and her lovely colleague, Dr. Farzana Salim, joined our conversation and you're gonna hear us talk about, you know, anti-racism and how how racism affects mental health um, in all the ways that it does. And we're gonna talk also about black joy, black liberation, Um, And I'm so excited to unpack this with you all today. It's a topic that can't get enough coverage. You know, it's such an important topic. Um, And so um, before we get started, I want to remind you guys, you can check out all my free resources on my website. My website did recently change. Um, It's now www.eatingdisorderocdtherapy.com. My business is now fully incorporated, which I'm super excited about. So we have a name change and other exciting stuff, hopefully coming up in the new year, which I will tell you as that happens. I'm so grateful for all of your support. Um, just really reflecting on how I've been doing this podcast for a year now and started my business. And it's just really fun um, and exciting to see all that grow. And you can always check out my online recovery course. Um, I've got the eating disorder recovery course. I've also got the mixed experience course. All of that information is on my website. Um, And I would love if you would leave me a review on Apple. That is the biggest gift you can give me because it helps this podcast reach more people. And remember the intentions for this podcast are to get free educational content out to people who can't traditionally afford um, therapy or um, any kind of help seeking services, right? I want this to be, this podcast to be a social justice mission because I think everyone deserves to have the knowledge and tools to help them live a more liberated life in terms of, you know, we talk a lot about eating disorder recovery here, but also just mental health in general. So anyways, I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Let's get to it. (laughs) 
So today we have Dr. Salim and Dr. Jackson here on Body Justice. Um, can you both tell us a little bit about how you identify and what you're passionate about? Sure, I'm happy to kick us off. Excited to be here with everyone. Um, so I am from Atlanta, Georgia. Feels like that's a big part of my identity as a AT alien. And um, I'm mixed race black. So my mother is African-American. My father is South Asian Indian, um, cisgender uh, woman. And so I um, am right now located in the Bay Area. Um, so I'm on the West Coast in, in Northern California um, and grew up very much so um, as a, a Southern in kind of the Southern cultural experience. Um, and that carries on with me very much so in how I see the world, I think, and motivates a lot of my, my research and the work that I do um, with African-American youth and kids of color. Mm. That's incredible. Um, I love that you're working with with the youth and I think it's just so needed, right? Like there's not enough providers working um, with marginalized youth, so. Yes, and I realize you also asked pieces of what we're um, passionate about. I'll mention a couple of things. So uh, definitely youth and thinking about mental health um, of black youth and youth of color. Um, and right now I'm more on the research side of things. So I'm an assistant professor at Stanford and a lot of my research focuses on how we talk, help kids kind of learn about race, help them understand culture, prepare for and manage racism um, and promote a positive mental health. So I think about how schools and families help youth to do that. And so that is a big area of passion for me. That's awesome. Well, I'm so excited to pick your brain today because that's definitely what I want to focus on is like how, how do we, like racism isn't something that we're going to like change overnight, sadly. So how do we equip today's youth with, with coping and managing with the effects of racial trauma? Yes. Um, that's incredible. Dr. Jackson, um, can you tell us a little bit about you and um, how you identify and what you're passionate about? Absolutely. Um, I identify as a cisgender, cisgender heterosexual Black woman. I'm a licensed psychologist, but also clinically I identify as a counseling psychologist, which for me makes a big difference as far as my work with social justice and advocacy um, and focus on marginalized communities. I am an East Coaster, which is a big part of my identity. I'm from Maryland. And I think, you know, they consider Maryland the South. I do not. I consider <laughs> it like the Northeast. Um, but currently I live in, this, in Texas, which to me is the South. Um, and I think another large part of my identity is I, I also um, identify, I, I grew up kind of upper middle class and I identify as having privilege. And that's important to me to acknowledge because that is the lens that I see things through. Um, and it also influences the work that I'm passionate about. So I think it is important, especially when we talk about things like intersectionality, that I am a black woman who also has a level of privilege, especially I have a graduate degree with the way that I grew up. And that influences my worldview um, and therefore the things I'm passionate about. And so I primarily work with um, adults, young adults and older adults um, and things like trauma, depression, grief, um, I specialize in working with race, racial trauma and race-related stress. I have a private practice in Houston, and then I also work for a digital mental health company where my focus is making sure that our products and services are inclusive and equitable. 
And that's what I'm passionate about. Um, when I think about mental health, I'm passionate about how can we make things accessible? Um, how can we help providers to be able to meet the needs of all people? Um, especially when we think about not just racial trauma, but all the different cultural nuances in mental health. Um, and I am most passionate about all things luxury. That has been my mantra for 2021. <laughs> luxury in time, luxury in people, luxury in my experiences, luxury in my rest. Like, yes. I think that we act like it is a bad word. It is not. Um, and I think that we all deserve that, especially with all that has been going on. Um, that is kind of, for me, how I cope and navigate is finding that joy in all things luxury. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love that. That reminds me of um, like Adrienne Marie Brown's work when she talks about pleasure activism. And it's a conversation I've been having a lot with clients too lately is that like, it's okay to rest. Like we don't always have to be productive. Um, it's okay to feel pleasure and access joy. And actually like those are really big acts of liberation because all these systems of oppression we live in want the opposite for us. Yeah. Absolutely. I think Dr. Salim and I have been doing a lot of work together. We, we work, we collaborate and um, are building together. And so that is one thing that I think both of us have talked about throughout the year. We have like encouraged each other and supported each other. Like take that time off, take that rest, enjoy that trip, even in how we work together and celebrate with one another. Right. We're like, yeah, let's make sure we also carve in time to do nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I think it is so important. Agreed. Yeah. And like not having to always be available. I think that's been a part of my rest practice lately is like, just because my calendar is open does not mean I'm available. Right. Yep. Yeah. Tapping into some of that. I mean, what some scholars too call that radical, like joy or hope. Um, I think a lot of that is important too, and how you even make space to experience that and then think about um, the future too. Right. So yeah, 100% needed um, always, but especially over the past year. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So how did you both get interested in working in the field of mental health? That's a great question. And I, I, I got to reflect for a second. Dr. Sleem, do you, you have a response? Yeah, I think um, for me, it goes back to, it really goes back to early experiences of wanting to understand people's stories, to be honest. I remember in third grade, there was a project we did. It was called All About Me. And um, you basically shared different things, your favorite color, you know, how many siblings you have, things that you enjoy, like what you want to be when you grow up. And I think at the time I said, like, I wanted to be a pediatric orthodontist. But I remember, like, because <laughs> I liked kids. I always liked kids, right? And so I knew that was going to be a center of the work. I think I also was at the dentist's office a lot because I had braces. But um, <laughs> uh, another thing I remember, like, having a distinct conversation with my mom of, like, I also love hearing people stories and I, I like trying to figure out how to support like and help people and so I have like that memory from third grade that's always carried with me and I think ties back to my interest in my interest in mental health um, because I've always um, had a desire for kind of wanting to think about how to use that interest and I think skill of, of um, caring about people and feeling compassion in the work that I do and so it wasn't until college uh, that I found out that I really um, wanted to go into the mental health field. I 
um, did a program called the McNair Scholars Program, which helps uh, folks, uh, you know, who have been underrepresented um, in PhD programs get access to support and training for how to get your PhD. And I took a psychology class and realized that I love the way, like I love understanding the way people think and how we interact with each other combined with um, wanting to support the positive mental health of folks of color. Um, knowing about experiences that my family went through with slavery and immigration and just seeing different things happening in my community, it kind of just grew to um, be confirmation for me, I think in college that that was the direction that I wanted to go. That's awesome. It sounds like it really started from a place of like curiosity and like wanting to hear people's stories. And that's, that's really the core of what we do, right? <laughs> Hopefully we listen. Um, <laughs> what about you, Dr. Jackson? Um, I think reflecting, because it's been a while since I've thought about this question, um, I am really the poster child for like things just kind of falling into my lap. For me, um, I do identify as religious. A lot of it feels like ordered steps for me, but I can also understand for some people who do not, the same thing is like, just like how things align, right? The universe aligns. And so I didn't know anything about mental health when I went to college. My family never talked about it. And I think that speaks to a lot when people talk about cultural stigma and things like that. And so um, I actually, bless my parents' heart, um, went to college in North Carolina uh, to be a fashion merchandising major. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't luxury. even know where it came from, right? <laughs> maybe that was it. I was like, I don't even know where it came from, but that's what I was enrolled as. Um, it lasted all of about maybe a semester. Um, and then I switched, um, everyone in my family are educators, my sister, my mom, my grandma. And so I majored in English secondary education to be a teacher, to be an English teacher. And a part of that was I had to take a psych 101 course. And Dr. Marvin Hall was a um, professor. He ended up being one of my advisors in undergrad, but I took his class and like fell in love. And it was like the first time I ever really heard someone talking about mental health and mental health in the black community. So I did go to an HBCU and that made a difference. So it was like a room, a seminar hall full of black people talking about mental health and what it looks like. And that got me interested. And then again, I'm grateful for my parents because I didn't take that class like my junior year and then I switched my major. So it's like, I'm almost done. And I'm like, oh, now I'm gonna major in psychology and did, had no clue what I wanted to do with that. Um, and ultimately, clearly I went on to grad school um, but it sparked my interest in it because I think, um, and I'll, I'm going to get on a soapbox for one minute. Um, I think this is what we talk about when we talk about stigma. We also don't often talk about under-resourced and underserved. So it wasn't so much that there was a stigma, there was a fear or a mistrust of mental health. I had no idea what it was, right? You don't know what you don't know. So I think often when we talk about things like stigma, that is the question I start to ask people, is there stigma about the mental health or do they not know this exists for them? or that it is something that is available. And so for me, that then changed how I was thinking about mental health in communities of color. And I remember when I applied for my doctoral program in my first class, we took a class over the summer, like as an orientation, as a cohort, people were like, our, our professor had asked like, why are you in it? Why are you getting a PhD? And everyone had these really you know, noble reasons. And I literally was sitting there and I was like, when it's my turn, I was like, I'm getting a PhD because people in my community are gonna listen to Dr. Jackson before they listen to Miss Jackson if I talk about depression and bipolar disorder and things like that. And I remember there were people who were upset. Somebody told me I had taken somebody's spot. They're like, You're, that's all? And I'm like, yes, mm. literally a title makes a huge difference in a community who does not know about mental health. And I would know 
because I was a part of that community and I came from a place of privilege and still did not know, you know, what this, what mental health in our community meant or even know much about it. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of like where my interest sparked. And it's also kind of why I do the work that I do now. That's more about accessibility. I'm like, you open up a whole new world when you talk about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that is something that's important to me. Wow, that's a really good story. And it, it rings so true, right? Even to be taken seriously in a professional setting as a woman of color, right? It, it, it's like not it's, not, it's just a reality we live in that we have to like overperform, you know, compared to um, the more, yeah, white cis het men, right? So I totally get that. And I can't believe someone told you that you took someone's spot. That's so messed up. Um, and makes me curious because we went to grad school together. <laughs> um, um, it's a so, reminder that we have a long way to go in the field of psychology. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it seems like something you both became passionate about when you entered this field was like really lifting up communities, communities of color and whether that's doing research in that field or um, in that area of the field or working directly with clients. Over the years, what are some of the ways you've seen racism impact people's mental and physical health? Yeah, I think there's so many ways that we see racism impacting folks' um, mental and physical health. I mean, there's documented studies, obviously, that, that show us over and over that it's associated with things like depression and anxiety and physiological outcomes like high blood pressure. Um, so there's there's definitely the the research that shows that I think also understanding and seeing the lived experiences of people um, has is pretty big and that's been in different areas um, one recent study I'll just quickly mention again my focus is with youth and there was a study that came out with, from one of my colleagues um, Devin English he did a daily diary study of racial discrimination with black adolescents and it was a daily diary study basically is getting points um, of measurement um, daily from, from youth on whatever you're studying. And so basically the study found that on average, kids were experiencing about five encounters of racial discrimination per day. Wow. And think about like, again, like just hearing the number, right? That in itself is information for us to think about the prevalence um, that experiences with racism um, or, or how they're happening, how, how prevalent they might be happening for, for, for many youth. And in terms of how they manifest, I think, I mean, I'm trained as a clinical community psychologist. I'm not currently seeing patients, but I worked with youth who directly talked about experiences with racism. Sometimes they didn't have the words for it. Um, like I think early on, it was like, I feel like I'm being treated differently or I don't feel seen or I feel invisible or like I'm frustrated that these things keep happening to me. Um, but it wasn't always that they used words to explain um, exactly what they felt. And some of my the older youth that I work with, I think they were able to name it um, or even talked about like intersecting forms of oppression as well. Um, but I think those were youth who you know, were, had more socialization around understanding like racism. And so I think those are some of the ways when I think about some of the youth that I've worked with, the ways that it came up was like, I'm trying to understand what's happening to me and I'm noticing being treated differently. I'm noticing um, these things. And, and sometimes it was like, I could see them trying to make sense of it in their head. Like, oh, maybe it's because my teacher knows 
this other student better. And that's why she like always calls on her more. Or maybe mm -hmm. that person didn't actually mean to say that, you know, they maybe they didn't mean it that way when they said I'm, you know, whatever microaggression um, happened in that moment, right? So I think seeing students and youth trying to grapple with it, make sense of it. And um, even as a mentor, right? Like I think I've, I've seen it, I've experienced, you know, racism myself, right? And, and having students that um, will tell you that you might be working with or mentoring their encounters with it day to day, even in some of the systems that we're in or some of the places that we work. Um, there are so many ways that it, I think, manifests and um, has these like ongoing effects. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And even just like accessibility, right? Like, I don't know, I, I work a lot with eating disorders um, and body image. And um, one thing that I'm always talking about with clients, because it comes up so much from like diet culture is this idea that like, we all need to be like striving for health, and that it is all like, our personal choice and responsibility. But looking at like social determinants of health, you know, like, what is actually accessible and for what groups and is it really our individual responsibility or is there like larger systems that are making health inaccessible um, for many people and so yeah it just reminds me of what you were saying um, in terms of like number one even help helping people name what it is what it is that's happening and mm -hmm. when you talk about those youth that just makes me so sad it's like everyone's just being culturally like gaslit, like um, conditioned to think that it isn't, that it's something wrong with them. Um, Dr. Jackson, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, clearly I agree with Dr. Salim. And I think when you asked the question, the first thing that came to mind for me was the better question is, are there any ways where they're not impacted? Yeah. Right? Um, because I think we, you know, as was mentioned, the literature shows there's a, a myriad of ways we are impacted. And my personal belief is we still don't know all the impacts, right? There's always new stuff, like Dr. Sweeney mentioned the study that she just had, right? There's always stuff um, that her colleague had. Um, there's always new stuff that's coming out and then we're learning even more like, oh, right? I wouldn't be surprised one day if it's like, I saw a study um, that came out this week that was looking at PTSD and women's menstrual cycles. And what they found is that our symptoms of, of PTSD change based on where we are in the cycle, right? Mm -hmm. And so the first question I had was, well, how is that related to racial trauma, right? Because then, because the point of the study, what they were saying is like, depending on when somebody comes in to seek help, certain symptoms may be more predominant because of also what's happening hormonally. And so I was like, this, what does that then mean? Mm -hmm. um, for groups of color, right? Like, how do we take this one step forward? And so I'm like, here's one more way that people might be impacted for yeah. women. Um, and so to me, when I think about it, I'm like, it shows up in so many ways. And I think, you know, to be totally transparent, I think it be, can be a difficult question to also answer as a black woman, because yeah. um, that's all I know is being a black woman and my experiences in that space. And so it is difficult for me to imagine what my life would be like outside of that. So for me, I feel like I'm constantly impacted from things to the food I eat, the people I connect with, the spaces that feel safe and comfortable to me. Like I am always aware somewhere in my body or my mind that I am a black woman. 
right? Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, those are larger impacts that show up physically. They show up in how stress manifests for me. It shows up in how I cope and how I navigate. And so I think that shows up in the clients that I work with too, right? And often, and we know this, that for some people, um, we can't, there's like cumulative effects of racism. So you can't always pinpoint the specific incident has impacted my sleep and my eating and, you know, my motivation, but it's like all of these things together are having this impact. And there's no way for us to go back and unpack that one situation. And mm -hmm. we don't even know which situations altogether have impacted you. Right. So it's like one of those things where I'm like, you were impacted simply by existing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That makes so much sense. Yeah. There isn't one, there isn't a way that it's not impacting um, mental and physical health. And it's so insidious that, and maybe that's, that's one of the reasons why it, it can go under the radar, right? It's because it is so insidious that um, when you ask someone, well, what do you mean? Like what happened? It's like, well, there's so many experiences, like how much time do we have, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. and maybe that question of asking folks to pinpoint some specific um, examples is definitely not the right way to go about that because it's beyond one incident, like you said. Absolutely. Um, I mean, when you think about chronic contextual stressors, you think about even vicarious racism. I don't even have to experience it to be yeah. impacted by it, right? When you when you look at all of that intergenerational trauma, like those things, it's like it is everywhere, um, and it doesn't have to be something I directly experience to have some sort of impact on me physically and mentally. Totally. Um, so. What does it mean to be actively anti-racist? I know this has been like a huge topic over the last couple of years. How would you guys define that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think that a part of what folks are discussing when they talk about being anti-racist is really thinking about how are we naming? So we were talking about that earlier, like naming what is happening and identifying it as racist. So calling that out, but like, how are we actively moving are pushing forward to think about changing practices or policies or thoughts or behaviors, right? That continue to reinforce um, racism ultimately. Um, and so I think trying to figure out how as a, as, a, as a society or as individuals, we're really moving to be anti-racist, right? Because I think, uh, you know, there's things that have been written and, and scholars have been talking about too, like to just say like, oh, I'm not racist in of itself is not anti-racist because you're actively working to um, make changes to mm -hmm. move forward. And so that is a big part of what I um, think about when I think of what it means to really be anti-racist. Yeah, it's like a verb. It's like, a, what, what actions are we taking? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, maybe a little bit controversial, um, my thought is that when we say, when you say, how are we actively anti-racism? I ask that question, what is the verb that you were doing? Um, it is also not enough in my opinion to be reflecting, mm -hmm. to be aware. I'm like, what is the action? So if you tell me that you were talking, that you were writing, that you are protesting, that you are changing, that feels actively anti-racist. When you tell me that you are reflecting, that you are learning, that you are increasing awareness, I'm like, what is active about that? That feels mm -hmm. passive, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the conversations that you're referring to that many people are having, I feel like are actually passive anti-racism, um, but it takes work and doing the self-work 
and some courage to be actively anti-racist because it also means, as Dr. Sleem mentioned, you're dismantling structures and you are questioning and critiquing in spaces where there have not been questions and um, criticism before. And so I appreciate all allyship. I want to be clear about that. And I also like to try to be an ally for other communities of color outside of the Black community and also recognizing that that means that I am doing, right? Like there is no trying. What do you do that is active, that is supporting this um, movement? Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, I think after George Floyd, right, there was, I saw so many like anti-racist book clubs coming up and it was like always kind of the same type of group of people, right? And it felt very performative um, because yeah, well, of course you need to listen to the stories and you need to read the books and you need to reflect. But at the end of the day, like if you're not taking action, um, nothing's gonna change. Like it, it has to be action-based as well. So I think that's a really- Absolutely. And that happened for a lot of clinicians too. And I think I had a conversation with someone once and they were like, I'm joining these book clubs and I'm reading a lot of these books. And my question to them was like, at, did you go through grad school and not see any clients? <laughs> like, no. I was like, right. So you didn't just read about treating an intervention and being a clinician. You did it. <laughs> I was like, so it is nice that you have the book clubs, but at some point, you get more done, you learn more by doing, right? That is why we go to school. And so, you know, when we had that conversation, there was, I think, a little bit of increased awareness in that space of like, it's nice to read, but the same way that we read about mental health, we read about all different theories and therapy, it, didn't, it doesn't do anything till you do it, right? Mm -hmm. I cannot read it and then impart that knowledge to my client. I have to actively do it. Um, and helping people to like reframe what they're doing when they're like, I am reading and learning in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I, I completely agree with that too. And it's it's interesting, I think, depending on, I think the critical reflection is important as, as, a, as a step. Mm -hmm. I think, especially when we think about white individuals, um, I think there does need to be some awareness though, that, that some self-work that has to come into place too, because otherwise, sometimes to your point of performative, um, you know, actions, it's, I think to come from a place that is, hopefully genuine and really working towards social change. A, a part of that needs to be some of that reflection. And as Dr. Jackson said, and once you start becoming aware of like your positionality, your privilege, ways in which you can um, support, uh, you can think about, okay, how, how, what does activism look like for me? And because my activism might be different from someone else's activism, then there's not one type of activism. So I just wanna acknowledge that for folks too, like, I think you do have to think about what is my personality, what are what what's my position, what power, what privilege do I hold, and given the combination of those things, my activism will look different from like my sisters and my friends or my moms, right? So um, remembering too for folks that we want we do want to be active, and in there's not one way to do it, but we do need to be thinking about how we're pushing and how we're challenging um, systems and and behaviors and thoughts of other people and and systems at large too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's so many ways, right, for it to make this a verb, right? There's donating, there's going to protest, there's having com hard conversations with people in your close circle. Um, there's so many ways, so it doesn't have to look one way. Um, so what are ways, you know, when we think about like racialized trauma, what are ways that we can actually help folks cope with racialized trauma? 
Um, I think the one thing, I mean, I think there's definitely coping we can share. One of the things Dr. Sleeman and I have been increasingly talking about is the radical healing framework. I think Dr. Neville, Dr. Gion Lewis, Dr. Mosley, Dr. Chen, it's a group who really has put forward this framework. Are they doing some pretty awesome work um, and recognizing the duality that we can be marginalized and experience oppression and be fighting against that and find joy in that resistance, mm -hmm. right? That we can draw from our communities, from our ancestors, from our families to have hope, like that people are able to make it through. And this kind of premise that like, that is what has kept communities of color going in the face of all of this is that hope, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I love that they call it radical because it is a different way of thinking because often we kind of get stuck in the terribleness of it all the tragedy of it. And we forget that there's also some joy in that resistance and in that hope. And I think when we can find those pockets of joy for ourselves within that, that is an excellent way of coping. Mm -hmm. So like your luxury, luxury talk at the beginning, right? Like reclaiming that and finding that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that the, um, the idea of, as we've been talking about throughout, being able to kind of give folks skills to understand and like name what's going on, right? Giving them skills to be able to figure out like, how do we resist these things that are happening? Um, you know, what are the different ways that as an individual I might respond? But in addition to that, like, how do I um, think about ways that I want to challenge a system or a, a group outside of me, right? Um, to be able to potentially make change because it doesn't always, it doesn't have to be individual action all the time, right? I think as, as a marginalized or person of color, right? Um, there, the onus doesn't have to feel like it falls on us to make, to change racism, right? We can, mm -hmm. we can build skills of like, okay, how do I respond when these things come up? How do I um, call things out? Um, how do I practice self-care, right? Think about that, the um, kind of radical self-care even, um, but then also what are things that I might want to do that are active to, to challenge the system? And again, coming back to that sense of kind of like radical self-care, if you want to call it that, um, I think that's another really important piece of this too, because having, um, practicing that and, and having hope, um, right, remembering like my ancestors, remembering the ways in which people around me um, are still able to maintain joy and still able to feel good about who you are, right, and, and embrace your sense of identity, because I think racism can also definitely impact our sense of identity, how we see ourselves, not just our ethnic racial identity, but our overall sense of identity, right? So building up that um, feeling affirmed in who you are and proud of who you are at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that seems super important for, I mean, obviously all across the lifespan, but especially for youth, right? Like, because I mean, just speaking for myself, um, I'm mixed race, right? But I'm very light-skinned. However, I grew up in a super Caucasian, very white area and just, there was so many subliminal messages that, you know, that I needed to have like blue eyes and blonde hair and have a certain body type and all these things. And I think it really impacted like my ethnic identity development and um, that impacts everything, the way we perceive ourselves, the way we are in the world. Um, and I think, yeah, if we could have those conversations with people when they were younger, um, and like empower people with like ancestral lineage stories and just 
things about our identity that also isn't tied to oppression mm-hmm. um, and um, that there is that joy and play and rest can coexist with those things too. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, an alignment with that, find your people, right? We know, I mean, research supports it. When you have support, when you have community, that that also helps as a coping And so that's what I tell people to find your people. We've all had that experience where there's an experience that you share with somebody who has similar social identities and you can just look at each other and there's already some levity to the situation, right? You just feel better. You don't even have to speak about it, but that connection, somebody else gets it, helps you to feel better or you can laugh about it, right? You think about how many communities of color make jokes and laugh about things that feel like a lot of tragedy in them, but there's somebody who shares that with you and you can find kind of the, the laughter in it, right? And I think that that is important. So I tell people to find your people, that person that you can just look at, that you can send those messages, that you can give that head nod to, that you can make a comment and they instantly get it and you feel lighter because you have shared whatever that you're feeling. Yeah, that community and that security is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else you, you both really wanna highlight? I would, I think the only thing I would highlight really quickly um, is also the need for um, bridging developmentally. That is why Dr. Sleem and I do the work that we do is that you need parents and adults in the community to model for the youth, how to cope and how to talk and how to have the conversations. And I think sometimes we talk about it separately, like adults experience it. And I think sometimes there are adults who feel like, I mean, I think it was CNN had this question they tweeted out recently that was like, at what age should parents start talking to their kids about race? And there were all these comments underneath and people were like, do I have a choice? What, you know, it was like, there's such a disconnect. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, yes, talking with your kids so they learn healthy coping early so that you also can support each other. You can model it, you can learn and help them. And I think that is, you know, how Dr. Salim and I connect when we collaborate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, is that what kind of um, your, your Instagram account is about, right? Communicating gracefully? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we um, we came together. I think we have a lot of overlapping interests and complementary interests. And so, yeah, we we started um, communicating racefully through a grant that we got from American Psychological Association. And um, it started as a, originally like a workshop that we were going to do around helping communities um, and supporting and partnering with communities to talk about racial stress and trauma. Um, but it evolved um, after COVID to really be a, a, a place that we could provide resources to the community to talk about this intersection of race and culture and mental health. Um, so providing tools and strategies and engaging with community members and providing um, different resources a- around the topic um, and a, kind of across the, the span from thinking about youth and, and as Dr. Jackson mentioned, the importance of um, families and community members all involved in this process. That's awesome. I love the account and so needed. And I didn't know that the APA provided a grant for that. That's amazing. Um, It's about time that they do something. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So last question, when you hear the term um, body justice, what do you both think of? Being a warrior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think um, feeling affirmed. Yeah a sense of feeling affirmed in in yourself. Mm-hmm. I love both of those. Yeah, it reminds me of what we just talked about, right? Like that active, that warriors are very active and they're fighting. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, thank you both. Um, where can listeners find you? 
uh, folks can find uh, me at farzanasaleem.com, F-A-R-Z-A-N-A-S-A-L-E-E-M.com. And they can find uh, me at Dr. J. Lauren, and they can find the both of us together at Communicating Race Fully.